Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your host, Rini Reed. Our guest today is Sister Simone Campbell. She is an American Roman Catholic religious sister with the Sisters of Social Service. She's a lawyer, a lobbyist, and executive director of the Catholic Social Justice Work Group called Network. And right now, a leading voice of the nuns on the bus, which so many people remember. She's best known as an outspoken advocate for social justice. Welcome, sister. So good to have you. Oh, thanks, Rini. Great to be with you. You are a lobbyist, and I would say at this point, it looks pretty certain that Joe Biden will be our Democratic nominee. So I'm thinking that it might be valuable for us today to concentrate on the issues that will be disappointing to those who supported Elizabeth or those who supported Bernie. And it looks like healthcare is one of the prime issues. And now with the coronavirus being so prevalent in our lives, let's talk about the differences in those healthcare issues and what Joe Biden's, Joe Biden's building on Obamacare brings to the table. Well, I think you raise a really important point that the about these distinctions. And one of the problems with the primary is everybody's trying to distinguish themselves, especially when we had such a large field of candidates, I mean, with 16, 18 at the top. And what they were doing was trying to get a slogan, get a perspective that would catch fire as part of their campaign strategy. The fact is the differences among the candidates are fairly small. The, the main issue is not that everyone should have access to health care. Everybody agrees on that in, within the Democratic Party and that it's a right, it's not only for the wealthy. But where the difference is, is how do we pay for it? And uh, perhaps that's the U.S. failing is we always think, well, how do we pay for it? Uh, as opposed to let's give our people what they need first. But anyway, be that as it may. So the Bernie plan is Medicare for all which actually I wanted it to be Medicaid for all because Medicaid is a more expansive benefit package, but nobody yes. asked me, but that, that's right. <laughs> they um, should have. Yeah, they should have. I thought so too. But the Medicare for all is a reflection of who pays, and that is funneling payments from a governmental source through, uh, uh, corp actually it's through contracted corporations that review bills and then pay for the federal government but comes out of the federal treasury. The what, but what that means is if it's coming out of the federal treasury, then we have to tax people more in order to get the money to pay it. Okay, so people pay at one point in their taxes and then gets distributed through the government and regulated through the government, which is one of the big challenges. Um, Joe Biden's plan, based on the idea that everybody should have access to health care, the cost of health care is too high, we have to drive down costs, is that the um, what his plan is, is what they call the public option. And that is that on our exchanges, which is a, a marketplace where you can buy health insurance, that there is competition by providing a Medicare or Medicaid model, actually his was a Medicaid model, uh, where people could buy into it. And so you pay your premium to the government and the government would take care of paying costs out. 
Now the benefit of, of a Medicaid uh, plan like that, a public option, is that it then gets run by Medicaid rules, which uh, significantly limit out-of-pocket costs, significantly limit the um, I mean, they don't have deductibles, uh, all of those kinds of things. And the other benefit is, is that they only have a 4% administration fee attached to it, as opposed to the 20% administration fee of private insurance. So the whole idea is that this competition in the marketplace will pull down the cost of private insurance by making it more competitive with the public option. It's interesting in Oregon, the state of Oregon, what they've done is they have put their public uh, employees onto Medicaid with their Medicaid recipients. And this has been an experiment that they have done and it has kept their costs down, both for, uh, both for the public employees as well as the Medicaid recipients. So we've got some evidence now that this really does help control costs. It's not a, a huge disequilibrium and it moves towards everyone having access to healthcare. But, but the issue really between the two is not the principle. The issue is how do you pay for it? Well, and then I think the other issue that will unite people behind Joe Biden is the, uh, the, the brand name prescription drugs went up. I read oh. things like 60% is as much as 60% between 2007 and 2018. How will his plan impact the high cost of drugs? Well, there's gonna to need to be, and he, he has additional plans for controlling drug prices. The, one of the biggest drivers of this is that the Medicare, not Medicaid, but Medicare, and this is why I get nervous about Medicare for all, is Medicare has no negotiations with uh, pharmaceutical companies and that they don't negotiate prices. Oh no, demand will keep prices down. Well, that has been proven absolutely absurd. This is like a, uh, you know, a free ride to the pharmaceutical industry that is reaping in Boku bucks. And every other developed nation in the world has found a way to rein in uh, pharmaceutical costs, except the US, because we like treating pharma in a special way. We like giving lots of money. And ironically, what the the big argument on Capitol Hill is, oh, don't limit our cost because then you'll you'll control innovation, control in immigration in innovation. My eye, what they're ninety three percent, ninety three percent of the funding for research over the last twenty years in the United States for uh, drugs that have been brought to market, ones that have been successful, ninety three percent of all the research is funded by the federal government. So it's not their profits that are funding research. Give me a break. So let's be real. What it's funding is keeping their, um, uh, their stock prices artificially high, putting more money in their uh, management's pockets and ripping off the US consumer because every other developed nation buys these drugs at much lower cost. So it's an additional piece that's needed. But the good thing about the public option is the public option is in the Medicaid uh, provision where there is drug price negotiation. So while the Medicare for all model doesn't have negotiation, 
the public option does. But uh, Vice President Biden admits that more needs to be done to con uh, contain costs. And there's a number of uh, actually bipartisan bills right now on Capitol Hill that could do it. Uh, ironically, it got swamped by the current virus, but uh, just when we needed less expensive drugs. Yeah. We, don't have a, we don't have a drug for coronavirus at this point, but you know what the pharma's negotiating, trying to negotiate on Capitol Hill is money for their research. And even though 93% of that money is gonna be from the federal government, they want in the bill that there's no limit on the profit they can make from the vaccine that they develop. Isn't that outrageous? So I say the federal government should take an ownership interest in it. And me too, me too. Let's look at things right now for a moment through the eyes of the more traditional Catholic and Christian. Uh, we know about an Illinois bishop who denied communion to a politician who openly disagreed with official church teaching. And Network, your organization, recently has disagreed with church officials when you came out in support of the Equality Act, which would strengthen bans on discrimination against the LGBT community. Your organization also disagreed with the U.S. Bishops' Conference on the Affordable Care Act, arguing that the bill adequately forbade federal funding of abortion. So, Sister, because you're a public figure, are you next in line to be banned from communion? <laughs> oh, good question. But I will say that when we do our nuns on the bus, we're always, and especially the first year, we were very careful about where we went to mass. So <laughs> made sure that it would we would be welcomed or we went incognito. Uh, I mean, we'd go in uh, cars, not in uh, our big bus. But so, I mean, we were sensitive to the issues. The irony is, is that, um, what often Catholics get confused is that the church teaches on faith and morals. The church is not the best teacher on politics. And what happened with the Affordable Care Act is the bishops got bad advice. I mean, I read the bill. I'm a lawyer. I knew what it said. I knew it said no funding for abortion. And, and then President Obama <laughs> signed an executive order to keep some of the the nervous uh, folks uh, pleased that he absolutely wouldn't spend a dime on federal money on an abortion. I really, really will follow the law. So, I mean, that was an administrative uh, regulation, but it, it, it evidenced the, the nervousness of some of our politicians. But what breaks my heart is in the midst of all this, uh, this uh, litmus test of purism, when the Catholic Church does not teach that the, it is not a matter of faith and morals that abortion must be outlawed, banned. And in fact, what we know is in France that has a much more permissive abortion law, it has much lower rate of abortion usage by women. And the, all of the indications are, I mean, there's been tons of studies on this. It's because French women have economic supports they to carry their baby to term. They have access to free health care. They have access to a year's paid maternity leave. They have access to uh, reasonable cost or no cost child care. They have access to food subsidies. And for your first or second child, you have in-home supportive services that can help you learn to be a new mom. 
And so with these services, even though their abortion laws are much more permissive, they're much more rarely used. And so what I try to say is what Pope Francis says in his Exhortation on Holiness, paragraph 101, is that the issue is about the dignity of all life. And that, yes, abortion is a key issue, but we have to look at what the causes are. And Pope Francis says, equally important is the care for the born, the, the hungry, the malnourished, the, the outcasts, the, the planet. Exactly. So, so the, the piece that gets lost, and I think it's been hijacked by political parties, is this absolute, you've got to outlaw it. And there's a big fight in Kansas right now about it. It's too much detail to go into, but it continues. There's this huge fight. You cannot, you know, you must outlaw abortion or we're an immoral nation. No, we're not. We're an immoral nation because we don't support women and we don't support families. We don't support kids. We don't, we don't support our people. And so for me, making clear that that is the pro-life issue, it's much more complex than just a simple check one box. I mean, we've got the death penalty. We have the, I mean, that is against all of Catholic social teaching about the dignity of life. Um, So the long, long list of a more complex issue is at stake here. But I think what's happening is that the absolute ban abortion, absolute pro-life no matter what the woman chooses, those rigid poles are done for organizing. And neither poll wants to give up their organizing principle because they raise a lot of money with it. Yes. Money is the mother's milk of politics. Let's let's call a spade a spade. So many who claim to be pro-life are really pro-birth. If, if they were pro-life, as you just said, there'd be a consistency about being pro-life all the way through life, beyond right. birth. Yeah, I, and I'm not even sure they're pro-birth. They're just anti-abortion. I, I mean, yeah. in a way, in a way, they don't care once a, a fetus is born. That's true. But the other pieces, they don't care that it's born. They just don't want it. They want the law banned. They want it criminalized. And that... Uh, rigidity really undermines care for the human person. And that's where we need the conversion of heart to care for the people. Now, I know a lot of people who do want it banned, who do work in work with, you know, moms, creating alternatives are supportive. So I'm not saying this is everybody, but it certainly is the organizing principles of the two poles. And as a woman who was actually facing that situation with the babe in my womb. Mm. I will tell you that I have very, very strong feelings that no one in this world knows where they stand on this abortion issue until you personally are faced with the issue. And I am pro-choice all the way. But given that situation, when I faced the life situation, I chose life and I chose to give birth to my baby. And thank God I did. Because it's the only pregnancy I've ever had, and it's the only child that I have to this day. But I think it's a very, very personal decision that until you're in the situation, you don't even know what it really, really means. Absolutely, and I think we, that that's so important, Rainey. The the personal experience of women in this in this setting is right. It's unknowable by many. By it anyone. is. It is. 
But as we are coming into the general election, let's talk about how Catholic Christians really learn to make prudential judgments as you talk about, about how to apply church teaching to politics, but to use their own informed conscience to make those applications. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think one of our biggest stumbling blocks is the intensity of emotion that goes into our general election. It's very hard to, um, for many, it's very difficult for many to be able to assess in that rational of a manner who you identify with. And, and that goes for me too sometimes. But it, as we face this election, I, I think that the choice of moral leadership is really clear. Um, from my perspective, the Trump administration is seriously lacking in moral leadership in how we, um, in their work within the world and their work in our country. And the fact that the president uh, continues such crude name-calling and such demeaning of individuals, especially people of color, is shocking. And I find no, as I say, no redeeming social value in his approach. I also find that his um, approach to immigration is sh shocking and naive. And, and the naive part is that he has no regard for the fact that most people fleeing situations in in Mexico and, and Central America are fleeing because of U.S. policy, or to say anything about the refugee crisis in the Middle East, which is because of U.S. policy. And there are consequences, and his incapacity to see the intersection of these things is uh, is shocking. It's a shocking lack of analysis, and it makes me realize that while many people that I've met have identified with his anger, um, they don't identify with what he's doing. And it'll be really important for us to lift up that mirror and help people look at the mirror apart from the anger and say, is this who we are? Is this what we want? But what I've heard is, but what about me? What about me? And I said, well, you are only good in the community. Let's make our community stronger. Let's not be so frightened. I'll have your back, you have mine. Let's stand together as community. And that I think is the key that will get us through this. So for me, the big, the big question is, will we as a nation continue to act only in the visceral act of our, out of our anger? Or will we have individualized anger? Or will we act out of a sense of community, of coming together? Of we're better than this. We, we can take care of each other. So I think that's what's at stake in this election. I think one particular area where I see the effects of, positive effects of Vatican II is in this area where as a child who memorized my Baltimore Catechism faithfully, uh, the church was my conscience. What the church oh, said is what I did. Huh. But today, I think we've evolved to the place where most people understand, not all, but most understand that the, the church's job is to help us form our consciences, but ultimately our conscience is our own. It belongs to us. And yeah. I really 
wondering how we can open up the, the people who are told still. And there are so many who are told by their pastor, you must vote for the candidate who is against abortion. I, I've heard it said, I've heard it put in leaflets that you have to do that. But we have got to help people realize that they are their own and they need to be multi-issue voters focused on the common good of all. I wish we could talk more about that or at least give people a little bit more room to weigh that and factor that into their thinking as we come into the general. Well, I think that's, I think that's really an important piece, Rini, because the the piece about church in the modern world is that our the role of the Catholic in politics is to develop uh, their own conscience. And that's our job. And to be able to make moral decisions. But what I've found around the country is uh, often a feeling of confusion and being inundated. In the 2016 election cycle, uh, we were in, I was in, um, was I Indianapolis and I was speaking to a, a group of about 25 uh, adults in a GED class getting their high school equivalency and um, I got them talking about what they were worried about and it was wages and housing and the cost of housing and being pushed out because of gentrification in Indianapolis and we had created at Network our organization video side-by-sides comparing Clinton and Trump's perspectives uh, or policies on these positions. And so uh, I showed these two 90-second side-by-sides and Thomasina, a mother of two, blurted out after seeing these two 90-second videos. She said, oh, now I can vote. I wasn't going to vote. I was afraid I would hurt our country. And I go, what? And well, it turns out the only thing that she knew were these negative ads on television. And she didn't know how to choose between the two candidates because she only saw the negatives in the negative ads and therefore her moral choice was to not vote. But with just a teeny bit of trusted information, she could make a choice. So the thing that I've come to realize is that some people follow this dictate of the pastor as a way of not having to think it through themselves but it's also an indictment of those of us who only do the politicking posturing and don't give data. And so I think the, that our role uh, is, uh, I call to be missionaries for the common good, is we gotta talk to our neighbors. We have to say, hey, here's a comparison. I did a side-by-side, -side. this is what I found. Uh, you might be interested in it before you vote. And it frees people up because we do know from all the polling, the most powerful influencer of a vote is somebody you know, is a neighbor. And so I think what it underscores for us is giving trusted information, become a missionary for the common good. Uh, on our website, we've got an election toolkit that's up and, and there's a form to, you know, to do your own comparison, do a side by side, uh, compare your candidates and then share it around. Uh, because people give us your website that. address, which you okay, it's, you know, surely it's network lobby, uh, L O B B Y, it's all one word, dot org, at org, and uh, you can go under you can do slash election toolkit and it'll come up. Um, and if not, you can 
I mean, if something goes wrong, just just shop around on our on our website. There's a place where you can take action and let your senators know what they should be and members of Congress know what they should be doing, a variety of other things. But that's in our toolkit that I think is going to be really beneficial for the election coming up. I want to pick up on something you said earlier about U.S. responsibility in some of these countries that are have such tyrannical governments. I think that the immigration issue has is a is a confusing one for the conservative Christian versus the more progressive Christian. Educate us just a little bit. What is the U.S. actually doing to contribute to that? Oh yeah, thanks for that question because we never we never look at that issue. Okay, so it's it started in many layers. The first was the trade agreements that started with the North American Free Trade Agreement, as well as the Central American Free Trade Agreement that was modeled on NAFTA. It's called NAFTA-CAFTA. And what this did was to put the uh, Mexico's and Central America's grain on the international market. Now the and ban uh, uh, government subsidies to grain grain producers. Now in Mexico, the, the big grain of corn had been subsidized by the government for years in order for the people, all the people to have tortillas and to be able to support their families on their farms, on, in their ranchos. Now what happened when the prices went on the international market, the prices got dramatically reduced. This was done because the U.S. wanted to export their corn to Mexico. So this was in the self-interest of the U.S. And when the U.S. imported that, started uh, dumping corn in Mexico, that caused the price of corn on the international market to drop further. And families were not able to support themselves on their land anymore. And when NAFTA was signed, Mexico was 10% population, was 10% urban, 90% agrarian. It's now about 30, 70, maybe 35, 65. But the fact of the dislocation is huge because people could not, could no longer support their families on their land. So the men had to leave. In the state of Michoacan, where uh, my community has uh, sisters, uh, Michoacan has what they call pueblos sin hombres, uh, towns without men, because the men have had to go to the United States to try to get money to send back because they used to be able to support their families on their land, but they can no longer do that. That's one piece. Second piece is because corn prices were so terrible, then <laughs> great opportunity knocked. And this is where the drug traffickers come in, the, the narco-traficantes. The narcos then start paying people to grow. First it was marijuana, now with the legalization of marijuana, there's more poppy and other, I don't even know all the stuff they're growing to do this, but drugs become more of a, of a life-saving issue okay so participating in the drugs then means that the drugs are going to move from the central america from mexico up into the u.s if the u.s puts pressure on the mexico government to ban the drugs so then it becomes an issue of criminalization of undermining the local economies again the other thing the U.S. did was because we care about kids so much, we put pressure on these same governments to pass laws saying that minors would not be prosecuted, uh, that there'll be juvenile offenses and we'll do our very, you know, heartfelt care for kids. That was where that came from. But 
the narco-traficantes have figured out if we have kids carry our drugs, they won't be prosecuted. So then the kids get pulled into being carriers of these drugs. And once the families are caught up in the need for this money, then the kids get into this life of crime. And so that's why we've had this huge swelling of unaccompanied minors is because the narcos are trying to get the kids to carry the drugs. And the kids are not wanting to do it. And we talked, this is especially true of Guatemala, Honduras, and Salvador. Um, we talked with uh, some sisters, this is like two years ago now, in Guatemala. And I said, is it really as bad as what they're saying? They said, it's even worse. That a child, 11-year-old boy, had been approached by the narcos, but he didn't want to get sent north by his family. So he didn't tell them that he had been approached. He just said no. And then his body was found in the plaza two days later. So it's it, that's another piece is this whole drug-related thing. And then the third piece is in order to fight drugs, we've militarized the police. So we militarize the police, we give them all this military equipment, and then the narcos get uh, to counter that, they get military equipment and that escalates the violence. So the violence becomes a big driver to that people can't aren't secure on the land. And then we act surprised that hungry, poor, um, how can I even say this, you know, threatened people who see on global television the fact that the US is a great place to be, hungry people will move towards hope. And then we act surprised that they're on our border. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes, Sister Simone Campbell, God bless the work you're doing. And thank you for being with us on today's show. And to our audience, if you have questions for Sister, go to their website, networklobby.org, or leave a message, a voice message on our broadcast.